Welcome into another episode of Cyberly. I'm your host, Blythe Brumley. But on this show, we talk about B2B marketing, the attention economy, and how it all fits into the world of logistics. And we got a good show for you today. So let me go ahead and set up the roadmap for today. First off, we're going to be talking about the problem with SEO strategy in freight. And then we're going to be talking to Matthew Leffler. He is the founder and creator of the platform Armchair Attorney. And he's going to be telling us about the biggest legal stories in freight that you need to be aware of. And then we're going to kind of nerd out a little bit and talk some logistics of Lord of the Rings, which I'm super pumped about. And then finally, we are going to end the show with all of those AI image generators. I finally got access to one of them. So I'm going to share some of the photos that I was able to create. So Maybe it kind of spawns some, you know, I guess, inspiration for you in order to get into the AI generator image mix, if that is the right even phrase to use. But we're going to get into that a little bit later on in the show. But before we dive into our first topic, the Moon Air Group is a leading recruiting firm specializing in the logistics and technology fields. Whether you're looking for a new job in the industry or you're looking to hire top tier talent, the Moon Air Group has the network strength to meet your needs. Learn more at moonairgroup.com. Now let's get into that first topic. And that's the problem with SEO strategy and freight. And I'm going to kind of paint a picture for you because I've, I've been doing SEO for years, for years, and especially in freight and other industries as well. And I'm going to painting the picture of once you go through all of the strategy, because for a lot of people who are out there creating content, largely you are creating blog style content for your SEO strategy. So you have to do keyword research, competition analysis, you have to see what's working well and what isn't working well. And then you have to create that content of your own. Now, if you do go through all of this successful you know, analysis and finding those keywords that make sense for your company, the reality is, is that it's going to take several months for that content to rank if it ever ranks. And then if you write, say, I would say about 20 articles or maybe even 40 articles using different SEO phrases, the reality is is that only a handful of those are actually going to hit. Meaning the overwhelming majority of your traffic that's coming to your website, it's going to increase, but it's only going to be from a few different articles if you create a lot of different articles. And so what happens is that when that traffic comes to your site, for the most part, it's low intent traffic. They're, they're coming there, they're looking, those readers are coming to your site, they're looking for information. So there's only informational intent behind what they're coming to your site for. They come to your site and the overwhelming majority of them will leave. They will never come back. They will never subscribe. They will never ask for a quote. It's the smallest of smallest fraction amount of people that will actually do this or, or go through the conversion process of stumbling on your blog or stumbling on your website and then actually making that conversion. So we even covered in last week's show about the Logistics Marketing Advisor study that was just released. And part of that big study was that now how shippers, they pulled 100 shippers and only 10% of those shippers are using internet search engines in order to find a carrier or a broker or a 3PL in order to use their services for their shipping needs. That is down 5% from two years ago. And so when you think about the fact that the majority of these people are low intent, they come to your site, they're probably not going to be doing much on your site, they're going to read the information, then they're going to leave. You couple it with this study, that's shown to drop down to 10% from from 15% just a couple of years ago. And then you also couple that in with the dramatic rise in search engine use on TikTok, on Instagram, especially among younger demographics. The strategy of I'm going to create solely for Google is, is a flawed strategy, in my opinion. And I know a lot of content marketers out there 
there are really hyper-focused on organic SEO content. But what you're going to... A lot of times, this content has already been created. So what do you do? Or you already have plans to make this content. So what do you do in order to sort of, I guess, salvage the work that you've already done and already created in order to maybe turn it into something positive? So here are my suggestions for what is eventually going to happen if it hasn't happened to your company already when it comes to organic SEO. Here are a few suggestions in order to turn that traffic into a secondary conversion. And what I mean by that is on your blog template itself, where you're writing the article, the text goes in a certain block, a certain block of information. Below that article, you should be having different CTAs, call to actions. So you could ask the user to sign up for an email subscribe. You could ask the user to follow you on social media. That's what I mean by those secondary conversions. Ideally, you want everybody to come to your site and book a meeting, request a quote, book a demo. You want those high intent actions, those high intent conversions to happen on your site. But most likely with that traffic that's coming to your site, they're low intent. They're just looking for information. So you salvage that by adding these different components into your blog post template. Because if you add it into the blog post template itself, no matter if the article is old, if the article is you know upcoming, then you're still going to have those same call to actions at the end of the post. In order, if you don't have an email newsletter, obviously you can't ask people to subscribe to your email uh, if you have social media, that's probably the, the best place to send that traffic. Another idea is to take other relevant content that you've already made on your site or have intentions to make and feature that at the end of the article. If you put yourself in the mind of the user that's coming to the site, what is the next thing that they need to know about that they need to learn after they read that article that you are creating? So think about what that relevant next article should be. Maybe it's two or three different articles. Maybe you can package those together into an email series and ask a user to sign up for those so that way they get them emailed to them you know, periodically over the course of three or four days. Still, that user is looking for information. They're not ready to become a, a qualified sales lead. It's a qualified marketing lead depending on what your metrics are, but it's not a lead that sales would want to pick up the phone and call. Now, with rela- related to what you should do at the end of the blog post and those next, ex- ne- those next step actions that people should take, you should also think about the fact that the majority of people, when they come to a site and it's a really long blog, they're probably not going to make it to the end. They're probably going to read a few different bullet points. You know, make, They're going to scan the content, which is why headings are so important, why bullet points are so important, making your content scannable. But they're likely not going to make it to the end of the article. So what we've done on several of our sites is that we take a CTA, a call to action. And we take a book, a demo, or um, sign up for our email newsletter, and we put it periodically throughout the blog post. Now we program this from a development standpoint, Uh, we insert these different call to action buttons dynamically, but you can manually enter them in as well, you know, make it uh, a bold link, make it a highlighted link and put it center it make it a little bit different looking than the rest of the text that's on the page to sort of make it pop, make it stand out. So you could do that manually, or you could do it dynamically in order to update all of those past blog posts as well. So those are a few different ideas. The next step you want to do with all of your future content is to make sure that you're focusing on those high intent, long tail keywords. So a perfect example of this is you have a situation where freight brokers, that's the the phrase that you want to really rank for. Or maybe it's a, a another phrase that you really want to rank for, like, um, freight broker jobs. Um, those That specific keyword isn't technically a long tail keyword. 
that is a keyword that probably has a lot of volume. Your keyword tools have showed you that this has a lot of volume. So it's natural for you to want to focus on that keyword. But remember, we've talked about this in past shows that all of those keyword tools that you have, they're going off estimates. They're not going off true data from Google because Google does not share that information with any third party. So you're kind of going off of these rough estimates that they these search engine tools believe that has the volume for that specific key phrase. Instead, you want to focus on those high intent, long tail phrases. So instead of targeting a keyword like freight broker, you're going to target freight broker jobs, Boston, um, trucking companies in Atlanta, Georgia, truck driving jobs, Atlanta, Georgia, reefer carriers, Texas, you, you, you get the point, pumpkin carriers in Florida. Those are the types of keywords that you want to make content around because they're long tail, they're super specific, and you have a higher chance of ranking for those long tail keywords, which will eventually give you much more sort of SEO juice in order to rank for those bigger, larger keywords that are much more difficult to rank for, such as the uh, the freight broker term. So keep that in mind. Now, the next one is you want to make sure that your content is made for humans, not for robots. The robots are the ones that are scanning your site and making sure that the, you know your, your SEO topic is, is on topic and that it's useful to their visitors whenever they come to your site. But you want to make sure that, that content is suited for humans first, not robots. Make it the best damn article that you could read. If you are writing an article on the best, you know, not best carriers, but pumpkin carriers in Florida, you need to do that Google search yourself and see who's already ranking for that content. Then you want to read through and you want to see who they're linking to. Are there any comments? Are there any questions on that comment or on that content? Because then those are the opportunities for you to take that keyword phrase and build an article around it and make it better than the competition that is already ranking for that keyword. So keep that in mind, write for humans first and robots second, and then make it the best damn article, the best damn resource that you can think of. Make sure that it is the perfect article before you hit publish. Now, the next and the most difficult task that I would suggest to a lot of folks out here who are making content, especially organic SEO content and freight, is that you should just skip the SEO strategy altogether and go straight to social media. Uh, social media has the biggest uphill, or not the biggest uphill, it kind of does, depending on the platform that you go to, but pick the platforms that you have the best organic reach. Instagram right now is not a platform that has great organic reach. Neither is Facebook. The best platforms, social media-wise, that have the best organic reach, meaning you don't have to pay for it, is LinkedIn, it's YouTube, it's TikTok. Um, I would even go a little a, a little towards Twitter, but the, the shelf life of a tweet is only a couple minutes long. So with these other platforms like LinkedIn, the shelf life of your content could be weeks from the time that you publish it. Um, TikTok is kind of the same way. Uh, YouTube is also kind of the same way where the longevity of your content, you create it once and it has a it has a way to resonate with the people that you want it to resonate with over time. It doesn't ha necessarily expire. So pick that first. Now for... I would say for LinkedIn and Twitter, it's a little bit more, I guess, challenging to know what you're going to post about. So what I would suggest to do is to go to Flexport, just made this great like 75 list of supply chain influencers to go and follow. If you're looking at the screen, it says 55, but they've since added on to it because once they published this article, they got a bunch of people that were, um, uh, I guess, aggravated that they weren't on the list. So they went and updated the list with several more people. So I would start there and I would start following all of those accounts because Flexport is listing them 
them for a reason. So go and follow those accounts first on Twitter and LinkedIn. Get a good feel for what's working and what isn't working. And that way that will help fine tune your inspiration for for posting content to those platforms. Now for TikTok inspiration, you can look at Rocket Shipping. We just had them on the show in the last couple of weeks. They were great. They have a great TikTok presence. Highly suggest going to give them a follow. Also Quality Carriers. There's another company on there, Ship My Carrier. Both of those, they show really great behind the scenes of like a day in the life of a freight broker, the day in the life of a graphic designer, of the social media, like all of those different roles. They show a behind the scenes aspect, which I really love. And then uh, Ship Silo is another 3PL offering that is really good at TikTok. So if you want to look for good inspiration from the freight space, I would check out all of those in order to make sure that you you kind of have a good feel of what's working and what isn't working. And then you can take all of those different nuggets of information and you can combine it all and create your own strategy that fits you and your business. So put someone in charge of posting all of that content every day. And then that way, it's one less thing off of your plate. And you know that you're getting the brand awareness. You know you're getting your message out there. And then when that user arrives to your website and they do convert, then you know that person is a high intent lead and not a low intent visitor. It doesn't matter if it's you know 5,000 people that are trying to come to your site if they're looking for a blog article. But what if it's 5 people that saw your TikTok or saw your LinkedIn post and they came to your site and they converted because of that? I think we care a lot about vanity metrics and we don't care enough about the right metrics. So just make sure that you're optimizing your content, whether it's SEO or whether it's social media, make sure that you are optimizing for the high intent users for them to become aware of your brand. And then when they are ready to convert, when they're ready in that, you know, that buy now mode, then they think of you, they pick up the phone, they send an email, they come to your website and convert and all that good stuff. So I think that those are really important distinctions for a lot of folks that are spending a lot of time and energy in organic SEO and might not be able to reap the rewards from that content. All right, I've kind of spewed on this for a lot. So let's go ahead and bring in our first guest. I'm really excited for this one. It's a guest that I have been wanting to have on for a while now and the stars kind of aligned. So now we are getting Matthew Leffler up on the show. He is the founder and creator of Armchair Attorney. Welcome in, Matthew. Blythe, I am so excited to be here. Let me set the stage. The fellowship arrives at the gates of Mordor. It's silent and they say, come forth. And they call the armies of Sauron to them and no one answers. And then they hear the drums and the horns and the gates open. I'm going to read to you briefly one of my favorite scenes. At its head, there rode a tall and evil shape, mounted upon a black horse, if horse it was, for it was huge and hideous. And in the sockets of its eyes and in its nostrils there burned a flame. The rider was robed all in black, and black was his lofty helm. Yet this was no ringwraith, but a living man. The lieutenant of the Tower of Baradur, he was, and his name is remembered in no tale, for he himself had forgotten it. And he said, I am the mouth of Sauron. But it is told that he was a renegade who came from the race of those that are named the Black Numenorians, And he entered the service of the Dark Tower when it first rose again. And because of his cunning, he grew ever higher in the Lord's favor, and he learned great sorcery, and knew much of the mind of Sauron. And he was more cruel than any orc. Blythe, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me on the program. 
<laughs> well, that I think let's just shut it all down because I mean the show can only go downhill from here. <laughs> that was probably the greatest intro that we've ever had on the show. So thank you for that, Matthew. We set it up. We get going. It's going to go only better, everybody. Only better. Get excited. <laughs> all right. Well, well, perfect. So, so for folks who may not know anything about you and tuning into this show. Give folks a little bit of background on who Matthew is, why he's such a big Lord of the Rings fan, um, and how you are, you know, covering these legal topics and freight, which is, you know, I guess kind of relevant, but not really, but we're going to cover it anyways. Yeah, the, the key here is that I am one of the people not included on Flexport's list. And I think that's probably the most important thing everyone should know. No, I kid. No, I've been in supply chain and uh, not yet. There you go. I appreciate that. I've been in supply chain for over a decade now. My father was a roadway guy back in 1976. I love the supply chain. There's nothing harder to do than safely delivering freight on time and undamaged. And in supply chain, you can't opt out of it. As Jason Miller calls it, it's a supply web. It's all the things. And the law is very similar to that. You don't get to opt out of it. And most of the time, you don't think about it. But sometimes the things align and they come together. So I created Armchair Attorney. I represent clients. It's a law firm. And I do other things, including making guest appearances on fantastic television shows. So I'm excited to be here. And that's kind of the, the high-level background of, of me and what I do. So what was sort of the catalyst? Because you are starting your own, you know, armchair attorney. I know you kind of had that brand kind of sitting there for a while. Were you practicing law before and just decided that, you know, this is, I think you describe it as a, a boutique style uh, law firm. Mm -hmm. So I guess kind of break that down of, of what that all entails. So Armchair Attorney began as an LLC as actually a consulting firm, but I ended up having to kick my wife out or she opted to leave uh, and became, we turned into a law firm. And it says a non-lawyer can't own anything that a law firm does. So I've been practicing law since 2010. I represented trucking companies in private practice and the insurance companies that represented those trucking companies. I went in-house for a period of time. And so I was a general counsel for a trucking uh, maintenance and repair firm. So I've always been touching the law side of the business. We actually had a company in 2018. We sold it. And I went on to work at that surviving entity, uh, but not in a legal capacity. And so I did that. When I left them after a year and a half, I had a non-competition agreement. And so I had to figure out something else to do. So I got into software and I did software for a little bit. And then I got into the, back into the law practice, uh, helping clients understand and address legal situations. Well, you kind of just set it up right for me for, for my next question, because we wanted to talk about some of the biggest, you know, legal issues that are going on in freight. You know, on the marketing side of things, I feel like I have so much news to keep up with, both on the freight side and the marketing side in order to, you know, make great content. But then on your end of, your end of things, you're focusing on the legal aspect of it. So you just mentioned the non-competes. What, what is, I guess, sort of the ethos of, of what's going on in the freight space with non-competes? Because there's kind of a movement going on right now. Yeah, so there's a new movement called endnoncompetes.com. You can find out more about it by going to endnoncompetes.com. And what these this whole movement is about is that we use non-competition agreements and non-solicitation agreements and post-employment restrictive covenants. That's like the legal term. They're all over the industry. There's millions of people in all industries that are bound up in these non-competition agreements. I've even seen non-competition agreements that would prohibit a sandwich shop maker for making a sandwich within three miles of the sandwich store they work for. So these things are everywhere and they're pervasive. And we have people that join companies and that they're afraid to leave because if they leave, they might get sued. We saw not that long ago some people leaving a company called Four Kites, going over to Project 44, and those individual people who've been at Four Kites for less than six months in some cases get sued 
It's absurd. It's wrong. And so I'm a big advocate of, of challenging non-competes and the assumption that these are good for anybody. I contend they are bad for employees. They're bad for businesses. And they're bad for their customers. If the only reason your team is staying with you is because they think they might get sued, you have a bigger problem. And I think that this is a, a way people kind of forget that non-competes are just terrible for everybody. What is the, I guess, the motivation of providing them, just keeping your employees locked in and not able to go anywhere? Is, is that, I guess, the main motivation? It's bad legal advice, in my opinion. Uh, what happens with someone with a non-compete is they say, look, I have a retention problem. These people keep quitting and they take my customers. And well, how can I solve it? Well, how about we lock them into a contract that says if they try to leave, you'll sue them. Oh, that seems like a great solution. Let's do that. So it becomes this kind of like panacea that everyone starts putting them in place, not realizing ultimately that they're bad for everybody. And so what ends up happening is the HR team says, well, this is just what you have to sign to work with us. You sign the non-competition agreement and there's three variables for non-competition agreements. They really go in, in this kind of category. How long do they last? How wide do they go? And what is the thing they stop you from doing? This idea of what, what is the business? And oftentimes you're not paid money for these non-competition agreements. I use the analogy as if you were dating somebody and that person says, you know what? I think we should see other people. And you go, okay, well, that, that's fine. We don't really work out. And they come back and say, before we, we call it quits, you can't date anyone else at all like me. I mean, that's absurd. It's insane. And it's insane that we have them all over the place in everybody's uh, HR team. It's just terrible. So what, what would you say, I guess, to an employee that is excited to take a job and they go to a new employment and they, they go through, they jump through all the hoops in order to get hired and then they find out the, the, the non-compete is just slapped on the desk and they kind of feel forced to sign it. What kind of advice would you give to an employee that finds himself in that experience? This is the most common advice I typically give. And this is not meant to be legal advice, but this is just good advice in general. Always consult a lawyer. When you're looking to take on a new role, the first thing you want to do is say, okay, well, how much does the role pay? And number two, are there other things that I have to sign in order to be part of your team? Find out as early as you can, do you have to sign any of these, what I call, again, the post-employment restrictive covenants, these non-competes, non-solicits. If they say yes, you say, can I get copies of them before we have the next round of interviews? Like, I want to just see what these documents are. Even if you don't get them after the, before the interviews take place, you want to get copies of anything. If you're provided with time to review these things, you want to ask minimum for a weekend. Generally speaking, you want at least a week to take the time and read about how long does it go? Where does it apply? Is it just my city? Is it my state? Is it the country? Is it the world? And then what is it that I can't do? And this is the key for everybody who's in that situation. Negotiate. If you're in the freight brokering business, you know how to negotiate. Everything is negotiable. You say, I don't like this being two years. If I have to sign it, how about we make it six months and you pay me 20 grand? You can negotiate every single aspect of these documents and you have to do it. Are there any parts of non-competes that are acceptable? Like you, you just mentioned maybe a, a six-month term that's applied to it. Is there is there like a ballpark, I guess, okay sort of contract that is okay to sign as an employee or are they just all bad? They're not all bad. Actually, in my opinion, they're all in some levels good. I mean, contracts are really important and we want people to have contracts they understand. In selling a business, you're going to have a non-competition agreement. That's reasonable. But you're paid for that. Um, non-competition agreements that don't have what we call separate consideration. That means I pay you money for the separate agreement. They should all have separate consideration. And then mm -hmm. in terms of duration, what I think is really useful to think about is for every year that you work, maybe a month of non-competition. And 
And ultimately, you should be paid to sit out. Companies really think that if they can lock you out from competing, that gives them a competitive advantage. That's just wrong because as time goes on, these companies like Forkites that throw up these non-competition agreements and sue people, it makes you look weak. It makes you look dumb. And so I think that companies are going to realize they're not as effective. But if you really have to use them, make them reasonable, limit the geography and make it very much aligned with how long that person has been there. If they come in and they've been there for two months and you're going to put them in a two-year non-compete, go pound sand. That's not going to work. Give them a, a pathway of for every year, here's a month, something like that. So there are terms when these things are okay. But for everyone who signed these things, understand you're probably bound by them. You might not think that they're enforceable. You may not want to have to enforce it, but they're probably going to be enforceable in many jurisdictions. So this is just the nature of these documents. Now, another big issue that I keep hearing about, and I don't know all of the nuances to it, but AB5, which is the ruling, I believe, that was um, created in California. I'll, I'll just let you sort of break it down. Yeah. What do we need to know about AB5 and how does it affect the freight industry? That's a really good question. I think we're going to find that it's not as frightening as we think it is. So let's just back up for a second. AB5 is a statute that has to deal with how employees are classified. Are they employees? Are they independent contractors? And it's a three-part test. What I like to use as the analogy, and we talk about space a little bit by doing this, is what is a planet? Well, a planet is something that orbits a star. It has to have hydrostatic equilibrium. It has to be a ball of sphere. It has to clear its orbital path. Those three elements is the test that says, okay, this object is actually a planet or it's actually a dwarf planet. ABC test under AB5 is very similar. It looks at three different factors as to whether or not somebody is an employee or they're an independent contractor. The statute itself assumes that the person who's being looked at is actually an employee. So they start with the presumption, this person is probably an employee. You need to prove to me that they're not an employee. Now, the big thing about AB5 is it's a codification. So there was a case, an actual Supreme Court case in the state of California that established the ABC test for California back in 2018. So this isn't a new law necessarily. It's a codification, the taking of the, the law from the Supreme Court in California and making that into a statute. But even before this, back in 1989, California had the common law of how you identify a contractor from an employee. And to talk a little bit more about that ABC test, 20 states use it. So it's not like it's some weird aberration that no one's ever heard about. What you hear a lot is uh, people saying, well, AB5 is going to put 70,000 independent contractors out of business. That's probably not true. It probably means if you were to take it as it's outlined, there's 70,000 people that are truck drivers that have been misclassified as independents when they're actually employees. In the state of California, they estimate over 1 million people are actually employees when they're being told that they're independent contractors. There's a ton of liability at stake. and There's a ton of compliance issues you have to have if you're outsourcing certain critical functions of your business. But that's the nutshell what AB5 is. It is a test that establishes whether someone is an independent contractor or they're an employee. And if they're an employee and you've misclassified them, you are going to have to pay some things like back wages. You'll have to pay workers' compensation, unemployment, a whole lot of things and on top of additional fines. So it's a very interesting law. It's very worth us paying attention to, but it's also worth understanding. It's not that different than what it was before. 
What about to, to, to play devil's advocate for a minute? What happens on, you know, I say the owner operator side of things? Because I think that that's the biggest argument that I've been hearing coming out of it is that these owner operators, they want to be able to choose, you know, which companies that they work for. They want to be able to choose whether they drive into California or not based on the, this law and how it affects them. Mm-hmm. What is the relationship, I guess, like with the owner operators and can they still operate how they want to if they're living in the state of Florida or not Florida, but California? Yeah. That's a great question. That's a great question. So I'm an independent contractor. I have my own trucking business. I want to remain independent. What's going to happen is no one's going to come bother me. No one's going to bother me. What will likely happen is if I decide I want to actually figure out, am I an employer? Am I an independent contractor? You look at the test. So a driver who has one client, who only goes to one route, who is told exclusively where you're going to go and what you're going to do, that might likely be an employee. But if you're doing stuff on like with multiple clients and you control your own schedule, you don't have to check in with someone from your your customer every single day, uh, then you're probably not an employee. The thing that we run into, and this is very common in the dragage business, is that you have someone who's, who's, who's told you're an independent contractor, you go from this place to that place every single day, five times a day. That's what your job is. And if you get stopped in traffic, that doesn't impact me because I'm paying you a flat rate to make those moves. I'm not paying you an hourly uh, wage to go move this stuff. But when you look back and say, okay, well, let's take a look at that test. What are you actually doing every day? It looks a lot more like this is an employee, not a contractor. So if you want to be an independent contractor, you absolutely can. My advice to everybody, again, not legal advice, get your own lawyer, but have a separate business. Have the, all the recommendations, all the things and certifications and insurance that you need to run a company. And you're still going to be an independent contractor. Keep in mind, every Amazon driver, every FedEx ground driver coming to your home is a contractor. They're not employees of FedEx. And these guys have been dealing with classification issues for decades, at least in the case of FedEx ground. So again, I do think that there might be some people who have been calling themselves independent contractors when they're probably not. But if they want to be independent contractors or independent drivers or owner operators? Absolutely. There's one last thing I'll mention on this is one of the ways of tactics to address this is to take those owner operators who have only one client, turn them into W-2s underneath that hiring entity, and then have that hiring entity lease the truck from that owner operator. And that is a normal path. It's one of the ways you can deal with this liability. And I think that that's all really great points because I see, you know, a lot of drivers basically saying they're never going to California again after this <laughs> ruling. And so it's, it's, you know, it's one side of the pendulum and then the other side, more of the, the, the rational side of things, I guess. And so you're, you're, you bring it together nicely for us. Um, so appreciate that breakdown, which I imagine that a lot of topics like this are being covered by yourself, by, you know, uh, your, your YouTube channel, um, your social media presence, things like that. When did you make the, I guess, the, what was the catalyst for you deciding to jump into the content marketing game, especially in this industry? So I was working at a trailer sharing company and my team leader had already spent all of our marketing budget. And so I said, well, how do I just do interviews with people? I'll call my friends up, we'll put it on Zoom and I'll just call them and we'll have a conversation. And it was so effective in communicating the values that I wanted to communicate that I realized there is an untapped market and some sort of creative performance art sort of thing. And so after I left that role, I knew that there was this, this unmet need of certain types of content creation. And law became one of these areas that I found really interesting because there's so many things we don't know about. And we read about a headline, we say, well, that's really strange. How could that be possible? And I try to step back and go, okay, let's take a look at the documents. 
let's walk through what's being talked about. And hopefully the audience can come away and go, that actually provided value to me. That I learned something that I didn't know. And I tried to be, and as, as a lawyer, giving both sides of an argument as to why the outcome is the way that it is and what each side is trying to go for. And I love doing it. It's so much fun. Uh, my oldest son has been probably the biggest uh, driver of me continuing this because he has me do things like the Spider-Man up there. Oh, this side. Uh, he's hiding. Um, I move him around for every show that I do. And he looks for Aww. it. So this is the stuff that I, <laughs> I enjoy doing. It's fun. I mean, obviously, you, you know your way around like the, the, the Zoom camera work because you opened up the show. Your intro was a, a Lord of the Rings uh, quote that you were reading off. Another great thing I think that you do is that you're really involved in the like freight social media community space. Mm -hmm. uh, freight socks is one thing that we've bonded over yes. in the past along with Ingrid Brown. Wow. Um, you can clearly see with your shirt right now, it's a, it's a trucking appropriate shirt. <laughs> what other, I guess, uh, sort of marketing in this industry has been inspirational to you? you know, there's a great line, and it's a story I got from Reddit a long, long time ago. And I'm going to tell it briefly, and I won't take up too much time. But the story goes, there was somebody who was, uh, had a, a, a tire blowout. And a family uh, came in the pouring rain and helped change the tire. And in the process, this guy tried to pay the, the guy who helped him. Like, here's 20 bucks. Thank you for helping me. The guy's like, no, 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 no. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And he said, why? And the guy said, today you, tomorrow me. And this idea of reciprocity is so important to me. And people that go out there and create content, you are doing something incredibly risky. It feels so weird to talk to a camera about anything. Making a post, drafting something, engaging, there's this uncomfortableness that goes along with that. And in this creation of content, and this is what it happened, that's how it drove me to you, Blythe, and others in the space, is that there are people that put themselves out there because they know that there's a way to talk to your client you haven't done yet, or your prospect, or your friends, or just anybody who might find what you have to say interesting. And so when I find this freight community of people and any content creators that are out there doing something, I gravitate towards that because I love people that are putting themselves out there. And you'll find this flywheel of positivity that people who are out there, I look at Dan the Driver Row, if he's watching, I love Dan the Driver Row. He's a phenomenal man. And he shows us the story of riding in a truck and delivering freight safely on time, undamaged. This is amazing. And so I find that this, this community is one of the most supportive places I've ever been. And so that's one of the things that gets me so excited about getting freight socks or talking to people because it gives me an excuse to talk to people that I deeply admire. And that's what really drives me. As a Floridian, I haven't been able to wear as many of the freight socks, but when it gets cold and say like November, I think it's like November, December, when it gets cold to a Floridian, which is anything under 70 degrees, I cannot wait to rock them because I think I have like 20 pairs now of just truck socks. So it's incredible Absolutely. that sort of, I guess, the, the movement that like you and Ingrid um, that have all, you know, shared those stories about. Oh, you're it. part really of this movement, Blythe. You're, you're one of the catalysts. <laughs> you're, you're one of the founders. Don't even get, give yourself credit. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I will when I can actually wear them because then I'll be showing them <laughs> off a lot more. It's, it's too hot to be wearing socks in Florida right now. Um, now, you, you're so positive with your content. And, and one of the, the stories that really struck with me because I, I'm not a 
religious person. I, I see myself as sort of a spiritual person. I love studying, you know, religion and, you know, human civilization. I love that aspect of it. But one thing that really stood out to me is your positivity when you talk about your faith, especially the, the, the story that you told on Trey's podcast, Standing Out, you know, about how you got baptized as an adult. How do you think, you know, a, a strong faith helps you run your business, create content? How do you think it, it helps you in your daily life? You know, I'm not young enough to know everything anymore. So I was raised Catholic. I went to school, Sunday school uh, until I was 13, but I never really found a place in faith. And as I've gotten older, I realized that I've had so many blessings. And how do I, where do I direct that gratitude for the things that I have? And that's kind of the story of the baptism. I have been so blessed with so many things. And what faith has done for me more than anything is I think about like my toddler walking into a pool and I'm right behind him. And as he's walking, he might feel like he might stumble or fall, but he knows his father is behind him, guiding and protecting him. And that is, that is honestly how I feel, that I do feel that I have something behind me that is keeping me safe and keeping me on the, on the right path. And I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where the destination is, but I'm very happily and joyfully walking that path. And it does help. It does help to think about the things you can't control and how you understand those stresses and how you find joy in hardship. And so that's kind of been my story of coming to faith. And that community has been so instrumental in, in the, the, my own positivity, my own well-being, and it has been really helpful. And so I, I'm very happy to share my story of uh, being baptized and having my children in the room when I was baptized, having my neighbors who helped, who prayed for me. Um, that's one of the beautiful things about faith is there are people that will pray for you. They'll think about you and they'll hope for good things for you. And those is just, uh, it's really important, really moving for me. I love that. It's, it's beautiful because I think one of the aspects that you or, or one of the, the conversation points that you and Trey were talking about is the lack of community in today's society, especially since COVID and how the church really provides that for you and, you know, so many other different people. So I thought that that was a really important note, you know, about the, the importance of having, you know, a good, strong moral compass and that community around you. So I really applaud you guys for really... Um, a lot. I think a lot of people are scared to share their faith so openly, and you you guys do a fantastic job of doing that. Even you know, it, it just from a, an outsider's perspective looking in, I think it's it's really beautiful. So I think you you should definitely keep it up. Now, from one sort of, I guess, um, not a faith based conversation, but to a faith based book, Lord of the Rings. We got to get to it because that mm, is you know absolutely. obviously written by. By uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, um, he was um, a staunch Catholic, and uh, mm. he. I guess, conveyed a lot of his beliefs. Not I guess, he definitely conveyed a lot of his beliefs into his writing. So it's kind of a good, you know, sort of a segue to get to this topic about the logistics of Lord of the Rings. And we Absolutely. were going back and forth on LinkedIn about our favorite sort of transportation options about Lord <laughs> of the Rings. And I'm going to bring up a couple of my favorite. This first one is the, how long did Frodo and Sam walk? Which is insane to think about because they took this map, these creators, they took this map and they overlaid how long uh, Sam and Frodo, which are two hobbits from the from the show, and they walked from the Shire over to Mordor. And if you're looking at the screen right now, uh, what I think is hilarious about this map is that Mordor is actually in my neck of the woods in Jacksonville, Florida. So, are you I don't surprised know what that says by about that? Me. <laughs> I, I did not design this, by the way. This this inner this image has been floating around the internet for quite some time, and um, I just think it's kind of funny that Mordor is actually in the state of Florida. I don't, you know, I guess read into that of of, of what you will, but 
couple little logistics facts from that. It took about 13 months, 1,500 miles, and eight miles a day on foot. But then, you know, there was another commenter on this thread. This We found this on Reddit. And uh, they said, well, actually, they they pushed up their glasses as they were saying this, that they were in Rivendell and Lothlorien for about two months. So in reality, Sam and Frodo averaged about 14 or 15 miles per day with their travel. So it likely took a lot, a little bit of a shorter time um, versus, you know, some of the other, these other modes of transportation. And speaking of other modes of transportation, Tell me why this common argument that people make about Lord of the Rings of why just Sam and Frodo couldn't even use the the eagles to fly to Mordor. That's a great question. And it's been debated, hotly debated for very long, very long decades, probably. A couple of things. Um, there is an aura of fear that surrounds the Drakes and the Nazgul. And it's hard to say whether the eagles would have been immune to that aura of fear. The other thing is, uh, Sauron and the Tower of Barad-dûr, uh, they're able to sense a lot of stuff, including, where, in some cases, where that ring is. So, Keep in mind, Sauron is always watching those eagles. Those are enemies from a long time ago, thousands of years. They know about that. If they saw a bunch of birds flying in to their capital city, they're going to blast them out of the sky. This is not going to work. <laughs> now, there's a, there's people say, well, when Gandalf was falling down after defeating the, the, or about to battle the Balrog in Moria, that maybe, or Durin's Bane, that when he said, fly, you fools, you fly with the eagles, that's the solution. Um, that's probably not true either. So I do think the eagles are, have a really good case to be made about being very effective, but I will use the same idea of Glorfindel. So there's a whole story, people say, why didn't Glorfindel, who is this incredibly powerful reincarnated elf who is one from, who saw the original trees of Alinor, that's a big deal. Uh, why didn't he go? to freaking Mordor. Well, because Sauron can see his aura. This is a secret mission. This is a clandestine adventure. This is not trying to make it all excited and flashy. This is hiding and stealth. So I think the same reason why Glorfindel's not going on that journey is the same reason you're not using eagles to go to Mordor. And it's also the reason why the hobbits were chosen in order to sneak into Mordor because they have those sneaky skills. And also the eagles are their own species. You can't just command them at will. They they have their own sort of governance and their own, I guess, board of directors that make these decisions <laughs> on what conflicts they're going to get involved in and what conflicts they're not. They're neutral, exactly. The reason why they helped Gandalf was because Gandalf was friends with the king of them. He's like, hey, I'm on the top of Isengard. Can you give me a hand? Like, yeah, sure, I'll send someone over. We'll pick you up. <laughs> now, now, speaking amazing. of, you know, I guess the animal realm of, of Lord of the Rings, there's a couple other ones that, that I wanted to sort of shout out. Bill the Pony, he's one of my favorites, you know, as far as, you know, Sam, that's who he rode for the majority of the time before they got to, uh, what was the the doors of Minas, not Minas Tirith, uh, help me out here, Matthew, what, what are, where did they get to is the dwarves, Moria, Moria, that's where it is. Oh my, well, so he says goodbye. Yeah, Moria. So it's in Moria where he says goodbye to Bill the Pony. And we, of course, cannot mention, you know, horses um, without mentioning Shadowfax. He is the lord of all horses. And that was the one that Gandalf rode during the during the movie series. You can kind of see an image of him on the screen right now. Another fun note that I wanted to bring up is Viggo Mortensen. He, his horse that he rode throughout the movie, he ended up, after the movie was done being shot, he actually adopted his horse and took him home to his own, I guess, you know, sort of ranch area area. And then he also bought the stunt doubles horse for his stunt nice. double. And so they were able to sort of retire um, with the rest of the Lord of the, or some of the Lord of the Rings cast. One of the great now, things about Shadow Facts is 
Shadowfax is oh, immune no, ahead, to the please. fear of the Nazgul. So Shadowfax, what makes Shadowfax so cool is that Shadowfax is not terrified by a bunch of Nazgul on top of a drake. They're not scared of that. That is amazing. And then uh, back to our good buddy, Bill the Pony. Uh, Gandalf actually told him uh, words of, uh, these were guarding and guiding words. So Bill the Pony survives. He gets back. He gets back. So it's incredible that like you get to see these wonderful animals. I'm a big fan. I heard Vigo broke, broke his toe. Did you hear about that? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> that is like the Lord of the Rings, like the meme. Every time it comes up on on a movie, you're the first one to to sort of shout it out to anybody who is in uh, ears distance of you that you know the, that little fact. We're when a he good team. Black. The helmet he actually breaks his toe, <laughs> but then he breaks his toe, and the scream that he lends out it's a real scream because he actually broke his toe. For um, the people who right. may not know that, if you've been living under a rock, now um, a couple more that I wanted to give a shout out to is sailing into the west. That's another mode of transportation within Lord of the Rings, sailing into the West is sailing into the undying lands, I believe, of Valinor. And so that's sort of at the end of Return of the King where you see all of the, you know, Gandalf and um, Sam and I think Shadowfax was on that, that ship as well. And so they were able to sail off into the West uh, being ring bearers for all of them while you can see in this little image the three little hobbits that are left behind which includes Sari, Mary, Mary and Pip, not Sammy, um, but Sam, Mary and Pip. And so for the next one, I think you had a few ideas for some of your favorites. Let's just talk about Valinor for a second. Before we get to the next one, I want to talk about Valinor just for a moment. So we have this new series coming out on Amazon. It's about the Second Age. Second Age is interesting. Um, When you had the the undying lands of Valinor, you used to be able to go there. You could just go. It was in the West. There was a kingdom called Numenor. We're going to learn all about Numenor. And in Numenor, uh, they, I don't want to spoil things, but they do things that are a little bit different. And they receive a punishment of sorts. And the Earth, or Middle-earth, which was a flat thing, becomes a sphere. And this is, we're going to learn a lot of stuff. So I'm just going to put a little flag there. People, watch for Valinor and watch for Numenor. I think for people, especially Lord of the Rings fans, they've been waiting a long time to see some of those locations from the Second Age come to life. So I hope, mm-hmm. my hope is that Amazon does that part of it justice, that they respect the lore when it comes to, you know, places like Numenor and 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 Valinor and all that um, sort of legendarium that I think a lot of fans are really anxious to see. Now, you had a couple of them that we'll get to them pretty quickly. Um, you said, are the orcs employees or independent contractors? Kind of going back to our, our earlier discussion on the legal issues of freight. What about the legal issues in Middle Earth? I think that they've been misclassified. I suspect they're called contractors and they're paid through a series of snacks. But ultimately, these are employees. They deserve benefits. If you want to have a loyal army of orcs, you have to have good care for your veterans. I don't think they did. So in my my opinion, my, my legal opinion is that these orcs were actually employees. They were part of the military and they were taken advantage of. And that's why they're on the side of the dark side. They are. And they, they, they eventually they put meat back on the table, boys. And so with the next one, can we integrate the, the Palantir with Project 44? Explain to people what the Palantir is. So you have these things. So first of all, who, who made these things? Feanor did. Like, okay, everybody, when you're done with this, with this conversation with me and Blythe, go look up Feanor. That is, oh, Feanor is awesome. Great craftsman. The Palantir were a way to communicate between the different leadership teams all across Middle Earth. And so you'd stare into them. You could talk to people. This was before they had telephones and fax machines. You had this simple Palantir. And this is a technology that uh, helped corrupt Denethor because he didn't realize that Sauron had one. But anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, I think Project 44 is a great technology platform that can connect different systems together. And I think more likely than not, the Palantir are a great way for them to get into 
Middle Earth, get into the the you know moving and shaking of this really interesting place. We're in the fourth age or fifth age now, so presumably they're able to do that integration. I would also say that that ring that they had, the the One Ring, probably had some form of telematics on it. It was probably giving some positional data to somebody. So this is really important questions we have to address with supply chain and Lord of the Rings. <laughs> One thousand percent, because if you think about Saruman and how he was building, I, I don't even I'm not going to mispronounce it, but I think or Isengard. So he was building up Isengard in order to uh, create all of his orcs and the the logistics around that, I think, is fascinating. It kind of deserves its own topic. Maybe we'll explore that in the future. But there's a lot of logistics going on. There's a lot of manufacturing going on, especially when it comes to the orcs themselves. And now you kind of you already did your Lord of the Rings speech or do you did you have another one? For us, that was or? the main one. I want to start off with that. We had talked for the audience watching. I asked Blythe, like, can I just read something from the book? And she's like, of course. I'm like, oh, this is, we are copacetic. <laughs> we are on the same page. We are a very good team here. I'm very excited about this opportunity to collaborate. 1,000%. And so a final question for all of the nerds out there. We are being gifted with a plethora of content that's coming up in the next few weeks. We have House of Dragon, Game of Thrones that comes out this Sunday. We have Rings of Power, Lord of the Rings that's coming out in just a couple weeks. I believe it's September 2nd. It's that Labor Day weekend. Um, but that's coming out on that Friday of Labor Day weekend, I believe. Then we also have uh, Andor, which is a new Star Wars show that looks really good. It's not a show that a lot of people ask for, but it looks like it's going to actually be really good. Um, we also have She-Hulk. Um, we have a couple other shows that are all releasing within sort of a few weeks of each each other. So which one are you the most excited about? One ring to rule them all. One <laughs> ring to find them. One ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them. Rings of Power is going to be amazing for a couple reasons. One, we get to meet Calabrimbor, who is the craftsman of these amazing rings, the ones for the elves, the ones for the dwarves, the ones for the humans. And he's a descendant of Feanor. I love Feanor. I'm excited for that. <laughs> I am excited for She-Hulk. So the guy who played uh, Matt Murdock in the Netflix Daredevil show, he's coming back. Um, many of our listeners or watchers have seen Harvey Birdman, attorney at law. Uh, if you haven't, Stephen Colbert was on that program. Amazing show. I'm hoping that She-Hulk becomes our version for this generation of Harvey Birdman. So those are my two I'm most excited about. I'll watch them all no, probably. No, I was going to say, you're not a House of Dragon Game of Thrones fan at all? I am. I am. I just, season eight was so bad. Like, I have no faith in what this is going to be. I have no faith. They're going to build up some super bad villain and just erase them. It's just, it's just absurd. I, I'm sorry. I'm still really, really I, I love scared. it. I think that that's the show that I'm, that I like a little bit of disagreement because I think that that's going to be the show that's going to be tops out of all of these. I think Andor has a good chance to be second on my list, but I have mm. very, high expectations, almost too high expectations of Rings of Power. And I, I hate the way that they have portrayed Galadriel so far. That is my major sticking point. She's, she's a, one of my she, favorite characters of all time. She's amazing. She's really powerful. She okay, is, how about her this? character how about... is amazing, but not how Amazon is portraying her. I have major beef with how they're portraying her. Her hair looks raggedy all the time when her hair is supposed to be resemblance of the two trees. I have a major, yeah. major qualms with turning her into a sword-wielding warrior princess. Can't stand it. But for the rest of the show, I'm definitely I, looking I forward to it. 
would you think, and I, I don't know how people can communicate with us. Maybe send, send me and Blythe uh, messages on the different social media platforms that you know of us. I think there's a reaction thing we should be doing. We should be talking about like a recap of the last week. Like here's what we saw, here's what we liked. Um, I'll have a long list of things that I like because I just love anything fantasy. But I think there's a, there's a path there. There's a program there that I know the audience like, let's get more opinions of, Lef- of Leffler <laughs> and Blythe talking about Lord of the Rings. It's just going to be me yelling the entire time. <laughs> what did they do to her? <laughs> it's right, an Matt, abomination. <laughs> yes. That's been my reaction to a few different things. Every time I see her hair, it looks raggedy. So I'm hoping that they put some respect on her name. Uh, but we got time for uh, one final question. Uh, where can folks find more of your work? Talk to you about Lord of the Rings, all that good stuff. The best place is probably LinkedIn. That's where I'm the most active. Look up Matthew Leffler. Look up Armchair Attorney. You can go to my website, website armchairattorney.com or Twitter. I'm getting better at this. It's Armchair Addy, A-T-T-Y. A-T-T-Y is the abbreviation for the word attorney. And that's how I could fit the whole thing in. That's probably the most effective way to communicate with me. And I appreciate the opportunity to come here and talk to you. Like, I'm a huge fan. Thank you so much. I think this is one of my most favorite interviews ever. Get to talk freight and legal stuff and then also get to talk Lord of the Rings. So appreciate you coming on the show. We'll have to do this again in the future. Maybe have some, you know, sort of, I guess, uh, the freight world breakdown of the new uh, Rings of Power show. So thank you again, Matthew. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, that was a super fun interview. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Before we get to our final topic, we've got a few minutes left. Want to boost your bottom line? Start with hiring the right talent. The Moon Air Group is a leading recruiting firm that specializes in identifying the top logistics and technology talent. Take the first step towards growing your business by visiting Moon Air Group. Now, I kind of alluded to this in the earlier show notes or show, you know, sort of rundown roadmap. But we've talked before about AI and marketing. You have video talent, you have um, copy that you can actually have artificial intelligence create this kind of content for you, both in the written word, um, audio versions and video versions. They're kind of scary on one side, but then on the flip side, they're actually really kind of encouraging, especially for the small to one-person marketing teams out there. I have been trying to get access to one of these tools called Dolly. It's been around for a while now, but it's invite only. So I've used like three different email addresses in order to get it. Um, I still haven't been approved, but there's two different platforms now that exist that can allow you to sort of experiment and uh, check out how to use it. One of them is on TikTok. Now, I created a TikTok video. You can go to TikTok in order to watch that video. We don't necessarily have enough time to show it for this one, but but you essentially, it's a text input. You type in what you want it to say. And I use different phrases like trucking companies from all around the world, um, trucking companies in India. Um, and I was able to make that video in TikTok by the AI generator that was creating these images based on that prompt. Now there's another company that is sort of newer to the mix as well. It's called Midjourney. And I was able to actually create independent images that I could save to my computer and save to my profile in order to look back on later on. And so they're kind of like if you're watching on the or if you're listening to this and you're you're not watching, they're kind of like abstract watercolor paintings. And so for some of these different images, what you're seeing is a, a kind of the attempt from the the user or from the platform in order to avoid, you know, realistic looking fakes from hitting the the market. But what you're looking at are these different phrases that are being inputted into the AI. So India trucking companies and the AI generator spits out a few different images. If you keep scrolling down, you can see more of, you know, the 
evolution of trucking companies in South America, trade wars, uh, the future of global supply chain. Um, I think the last one that I shared on my Twitter feed is that uh, semi-truck driving down a Florida coastline. I got only a certain amount of credits before um, I had to, to buy a plan. So uh, that I think is such a really cool tool for a lot of these different small to, to you know one-person marketing teams out there. It's really going to help differentiate your company in order to create these images that really go a long way in your social media and in your website and all of your different marketing materials. It's watercolor-based prints right now. I'm fairly certain that these platforms are just holding back for now on re- on releasing the realistic looking photos because they don't want, you know, sort of the deep fakes and that kind of thing to play a role. So it's super cool. You can check out uh, the link in the show notes in order to make your own. It's over at Midjourney and it's a Discord channel. But that about does it for this week's show. You can catch more replays on Freight Waves TV and we will see you right back here next week, Thursday, 2 p.m. <laughs>